few weeks ago, and um, here in Genesis chapter 16. So let's read along, and it's, it's going to be, uh, this, is, this is a doozy. So, all right. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, which means had her beaten, and she fled from her. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you uh, for this wild story that's part of what Christians for centuries, even millennia, have claimed to be uh, inspired by you. Help us to see what on earth um, this is doing in your, in your word and how in the world it could have anything to do with us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I'm to read to you an article uh, from abcnews.com entitled, Smoking Orangutan Forced to Quit. Smoking orangutan forced to quit. 15-year-old Tori developed a tobacco addiction after visitors began throwing lit cigarettes into her enclosure when she was five. Tori is the orangutan's name. And uh, this, uh, this guy says this, We are working with the zoo's management to try and move her to an island in a big lake in the middle of the zoo, away from the other orangutans and where visitors can't toss her any more cigarettes, said Dan, uh, Danny Ike. Hindarto, the coordinator for the Center for Orangutan Protection, which is a thing, the Center for Orangutan Protection, if you didn't know. Until we get approval from the zoo to move her, a guard has been placed outside her cage to make sure she doesn't smoke. She will have to go cold turkey. And she's 15 at this point, by the way, so she's been smoking for 10 years. They're going to make her go cold turkey, which I feel like is a little harsh, you know, like, can't we throw a monkey a jewel or, like, get her some Nicorette or, like, something? Is there a more humane way to do this? But she's going cold turkey. And then Mr. Hindarto said, he added, Tori's parents were also smokers. So um, I read you this story uh, because it reminds me of our text uh, in two ways. Um, first, both of these stories, when you read them, is uh, people would have said in Alabama where I grew up, af- upon reading them or seeing this, you would just say, that just ain't right. Like, this is wrong. <laughs> like smoking monkey, uh, here, take my servant, and, you know. Uh, and second, uh, the, the, the behavior of parents affects the behavior of children. The behavior of the parents affects the behavior of children. The parents' actions affect their children. Uh, and those are both in this text. They're both in the Bible. And so first, uh, I want to talk with the first one, the, 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 this just ain't right. Um, and first I want to talk about this, what the Bible sometimes refers to as the sins of the fathers, and you could add, and of the mothers uh, here as well. In verses 1 through 3, it's this really interesting thing where, you know, um, they haven't had a kid, and so 
Uh, Sarai goes to her husband and says, hey, you know, we've got a servant here. Why don't you sleep with her and have a baby? Um, and you're like, okay, wow, that's, that's an interesting thing. Uh, and so I want to ask first, why did they do it? Like, why would Abram, the father of the faith, and his wife do this? Um, at first, it's, it's because they're disappointed with God. God made a promise to them, and he has not followed through on it yet, and they've been waiting for a while, and they've been following him and obeying him for some time, and he still hasn't come through uh, on what he wanted. They're disappointed with him. Uh, but second, uh, in this society, uh, for men and for women, but especially for women, uh, being able to bear children was essential to your identity. The ability to produce offspring was your source of identity, your status, your worth, your purpose, your fulfillment. It meant that you were somebody. And if you weren't able to have children, it was this, a tremendous source of shame. And it's important to us in today's society to a certain extent. Like a lot of people would say, yeah, I eventually want to get married and have kids. But there, if you didn't have kids, you were nothing. You were, you were worthless. But I want to ask you, uh, for you, what are you disappointed with God about? If you're a believer, if you've put your faith in God and you, you say, you know, I thought things would be different and um, I'm a junior, I'm a senior, and things haven't played out like I thought they would, my plans haven't come to fruition, and um, I'm disappointed. Or second, we don't put as much value on a child, and that's probably not this thing that you guys are all worried about. I think I'm like the only dad in the room, um, and Randy, me and Randy. What's up? We did it. We made it. Um, but you're probably not looking to like offspring is your source of identity, worth, purpose, and value, um, and fulfillment. Um, but what do you look to for your sense of identity, purpose, worth, value, fulfillment? What are you placing that in? So that's why they did it. Um, but second, how did they do it? Um, I've got a diagram here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's a really bizarre solution, right? Like, like we can't have kids. Why don't you sleep with her? Um, it seems very strange and foreign and odd to us. Um, but actually, this was a customary practice in that civilization. If you've watched Game of Thrones, there's a little bit of that stuff going on. You sort of take a surrogate mother and, um, you know, sleep with her, and that person will be our offspring. So essentially what they're doing, how do they do it? What did they do? What did they do with their disappointment? What did they do with their sense of identity and worth? They looked to the surrounding culture to determine how they would go about achieving those things, how they would deal with their disappointment, and how would they come up with a sense of identity and purpose for their lives. And so basically they're looking around. They're like, this works for other people. Like other people do this. All the people around us do this. And God hasn't come through for us the way that we wanted him to. So let's take matters into our own hands. If it works for them, it'll work for us. Um, again, if you're a believer, how do you do that? How do you take your cues for handling your disappointment or for finding your sense of value and worth and purpose and identity uh, from the world around you, from the culture around you? Around you? Um, I'm going to read another article. I'm going to read a lot of articles tonight. Um, and there's been a slew of articles lately on, like, workism. It's been in the New York Times, the Atlantic. Um, and this is an older one. It's just called The Busy Trap. This is from the New York Times. It's an op-ed piece. If you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. 
It's become the default response when you ask someone how they're doing. Busy. So busy. Crazy busy. It is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. Notice it isn't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts at the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. What those people are is not busy, but tired, exhausted, dead on their feet. It's almost always people whose lamented busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily. Classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in. They're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Even children are busy now. Scheduled down to the half hour with classes and extracurricular activities, they come home at the end of the day just as tired as grown-ups. Almost everyone I know is busy. They feel anxious and guilty when they aren't either working or doing something to promote their work. They schedule in time with friends the way students with 4.0 GPAs make sure to sign up for community service because it looks good on their college applications. We we know nothing of that. Um, (laughs) It's not that any of us wants to live like this. Any more than any one person wants to be part of a traffic jam or a stadium trampling or the hierarchy of cruelty in high school. It's something we collectively force one another to do. Busyness serves, and this is the part that just killed me. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against the emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand, every hour of your day. Hear what she said there? I'm so busy because there's some void in me that says I don't have identity, purpose, value, meaning, unless I fill my schedule incessantly. Uh, Can you relate? Um, I hope you can. I can. I, I imagine you can. Um, and we're, we're constantly bombarded. I love how she says, like, we, we're forcing this on each other like a traffic jam, where we're constantly, like, I feel like William & Mary in particular is this little subculture within a subculture of a subculture of a subculture of academia, where we just, we just crave the need to be constantly involved in something. And it, it's all around us. It's not just in academia. It's like, do this workout. You know, join CrossFit and be there five days a week. Uh, eat this food. Don't eat that food. Fill your schedule. Follow these rules. And you'll have meaning. You'll have purpose. You'll have identity. You'll have value. You'll have worth. Um, now back to Abraham. Like, in one sense, in this story, Abraham's move here and Sarah, like, categorically, this is a bad idea for anybody, Right? This is not the road to a healthy marriage, um, the, the road that they take. But Abraham is actually kind of special. He's more special than you and me. And that hurts your feelings, but you are not as special as Abraham. Um, he's unique because God has picked him apart to play this really special role in the history of the world. He's saying, Abraham, through you and your family, I'm going to bless the entire world. And he's saying, through you and your offspring, 
through you and your children, and he's putting that at risk. And there's clues in the text that Abraham is sort of a larger-than-life figure uh, with, with more implications for his life. Um, if you notice in verse 2, it says um, that Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah, uh, which is an intentional echo of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they've been told not to eat the fruit of just one tree. And Sarah takes the fruit, and it says that Adam listened to the voice of his wife Eve. It's an intentional echo, and, and it's a tool used in uh, Hebrew literature where key words and key phrases are repeated on purpose. He says he listened to the voice of his wife, and it's ringing a bell for the original audience, the original hearers. The moral of which is, uh, you guys in the room, when, in the future, when you get married... Don't listen to your wife. Like, that's what the Bible, it's in the Bible, it says don't listen to your wife. Um, that's terrible advice, that's not what it's saying. But it is cluing us in that Abraham and Adam are a lot alike. And then it goes further. It says in verse 3, that Sarai took her servant Hagar and gave her to her husband. And in Genesis 3, it says that Eve took the fruit from the tree and gave it to her husband. It took and gave. I'm going to take this. And give it to you. It's this intentional echo. It's a repetition of the fall of mankind into sin. Abram is just like Adam. And just like Adam, the sins of, his fa- of the father are passed on to the children. Um, carrying on through the generation. Uh, like Adam, his actions have consequences. So our first point was the sins of the father. But second is consequences for the sons. Consequences for the children. And what you see happen in Genesis 3 and following and in this passage is that immediate conflict breaks out in the family. Um, Sarai, like Eve, starts blame shifting. When Eve is confronted with her sin, she says, that serpent told me he deceived me and I ate the fruit. It's not my fault. What does Sarah do? She immediately, when Hagar conceives and looks at her, gives her, that, gives her the stank eye. She goes to Abram and is like, this is your fault. Like, let God judge between you and me because you're the one that's at fault. I, I did this, but you did it. And then, um, if you notice in Genesis 3, Adam just sort of stands there and lets it all happen. If you go back and read the story, if you're not familiar with it, Genesis chapter 3, he just sort of watches this whole thing take place. And Abram is the exact same way. He's all passive. Okay, I'll, all right, I'll sleep with her. Have fun. <laughs> your idea. And then he's like, hey, she's your servant. You know, just do, deal with her as you want. Like, it's, it's cool. Like, I'm, I'm out. He just puts his hands in his pockets and walks away. Um, and then as a result, Ishmael, who's born, and then later in chapter 21, the promised son, spoiler alert, Isaac is born through them. We'll get to that later. But the brothers don't get along. Ishmael makes fun of Isaac, and then Ishmael gets kicked out of the family. And it flames this conflict uh, that runs for thousands of years. It's like, hey, you know, we're not having kids. Why don't you sleep with my servant? What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) Millennia of warfare comes about as a result. Um, You don't have to be an IR major to know about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which trace their origins back to this story. It's crazy to think about. It's wild. Um, More on that later. Um... But just like with Adam and Eve, and with Adam and Eve, their sons, Cain and Abel, one murders the other in cold blood. A chapter after everything happens. But I want to ask you, what consequences are you living with? What consequences have you inherited? There's this 
principle in the Bible that the sins of the fathers or the parents, the generations back, are rolled down into the future. And not that God can't redeem it or work in it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what are you living with that you have inherited from your parents and your grandparents and even your great-grandparents, even if you don't know their names? Because you are. And so am I. Um, a, a thing I like to do with people, have you guys ever heard of a genogram? No? A genogram is like a version of, it's like Ancestry.com, but you're doing how people related relationally instead of just like genetically. And uh, it's this fun little tool. I should have put, a, put an example picture up here. But you, you draw squares for men and circles for women, and you map out your family tree, and you draw little symbols that demonstrate divorce, abuse, breakups, cold shoulder, distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you kind of map it out, and you go as far back as you can. And inevitably, as you look at this little picture that you've drawn on a piece of paper, I'd love to sit down with you. I'd love to do this with you. Text me. We'll do it. Um, and I'll show you mine, just to be fair. Um, and you look for patterns, and you begin to see, like, this is kind of the reason why when my roommate gets mad at me, I just don't want to talk about it. This is why when I express joy in my house, when I get all excited and people are like, emotion, emotion's not here, or whatever the case may be. Um, and you can go big picture to, like, your ethnicity, your race, your cultural background, and see sort of the patterns that we have in our culture that America in particular is living with serious generational consequences of sin. But then you can look at the small scale. Where are the divorces? Where are the cutoffs? Where are the inability to have decent conflict with each other? And how is that playing itself out in the way that I operate? Because one of the things the Bible is saying is that you have been shaped by your great-grandparents, whether you realize it or not that it has formed you. Um, we'll go big picture. Sociologists in general, we talk about this a lot, but broadly and generally they describe you guys as a generation of entitlement. Um, this was like a big shocker several years ago. It's, it's more common now. You've probably been uh, you know, beaten on the head with this. Um, I, I like to think of myself as a defender of your generation to people my age and older when they're like, oh, everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody wants a trophy. I'm like, who was buying the trophies? <laughs> like, your six-year-olds buying the trophies? No, like, it wasn't their idea. But nonetheless, um, here's another article from the New Yorker this time. Uh, it's called Spoiled Rotten, a little harsh. Um, and it's uh, written by a woman by, um, named Elizabeth Colbert. And uh, she had done research in Peruvian villages and noticed that the kids in Peru, like young five, six-year-old kids, were, like, helping out around the house and eating the food that was on their plate and basically participating in the household, and then observed an eight-year-old American kid who refused to tie his own shoes. The kid's name was Ben, so that hit me. That's my name. And, and Ben wouldn't tie his shoes, and his dad just gives in and bends down and ties his shoes. And she, so she writes this. With the exception of the imperial offspring of the Ming dynasty and the dolphins of pre-revolutionary France, contemporary American kids may represent the most indulged young people in the history of the world. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Um, it's, it's not just that they've been given unprecedented amounts of stuff. Clothes, toys, cameras, skis, computers, televisions, cell phones, playstations, iPhones. They've also been granted unprecedented authority. Parents want their kids' approval, a reversal of the past ideal of children striving for their parents' approval. 
Like, you, you may be like, I want my parents' approval. But the notion that we may be raising a generation of kids who can't, or at least won't, tie their own shoes has given rise to a new genre of parenting books. Their titles, and she lists some titles, The Price of Privilege, I own that one, it's very good. And that book came out before privilege was like a buzzword. Um, to da- or downright hostile titles like The Narcissism Epidemic, Mean Moms Rule, <laughs> A Nation of Wimps. Uh, the books are less how-to guides than how-not-tos. How not to give in to your toddler. How not to intervene when your teenager looks bored. How not to spend $200,000 on tuition only to find your 20-something graduate back at home drinking all your beer. Which is the real reason these books were written, by the way. Um, our offspring have simply leveraged our, bra- our own braggadocio, good intentions, and overinvestment. They inhabit a broad savanna of entitlement that we've watered, landscaped, and hired gardeners to maintain. Um, you, we've got to ask the question, what have I inherited? Whether it's the oppressive, controlling, abusive parent or the overindulging parent, which are actually in many ways the same thing. Because here's the deal. They want you to be special and know you're special. You want to know why? Because if you're not special, mom's not special. If my kids aren't special, then I'm not special. And I wrap my identity around my kids. Um, Sarah Groves, who's a Christian artist. I usually hate Christian music, but I really like her. And no offense. Um, but she sings a song called Generations. And she says, remind me of this with every decision. Generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. And then she sings, to my great, great, great granddaughter, live in peace. To my great, great, great grandson, live in peace. So she's singing a song to the next several generations of people she will not meet, but she's recognizing this principle in the Bible that my life affects other people. Your decisions and your choices are not just yours. They affect the people around you, and they will affect the people of the future that you have no conception of yet, pun intended. My sons and daughters, the way I treat my wife will shape my son's identity of what it means to be a man and my daughter's identity of what it means to be a woman more than anything else in this world, more than television, more than games, more than school, more than peers. And that's a scary thing for me um, as a dad. And sin can have catastrophic consequences, as it does here in this passage, especially here. Which is a huge downer, right? Like, you've inherited all this junk, some stuff you don't even know about from your great-great-grandparents, and you don't even know what shaped you, and that's, where's the hope? Like, came to RUF to get, like, a little kick of grace, so here it comes. Here it goes. There's more here than just that. A third point, like, the sins of the fathers, consequences for the sons, But third, compassion for the outcast. God shows compassion for the outcast. Uh, Verses 7 and following here. uh, Hagar leaves. She runs out into the desert. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. So he goes looking for her and finds her. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Which would later inspire the wonderful song, Cotton-Eyed Joe. 
Um, where'd you come from? Where'd you go? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for their multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you will bear a son and you will call his name Ishmael, which means the Lord's the Lord hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. But then it gets a little rough. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called to the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And the original audience would have known what that was and where it was. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore him, the name that the, the angel said, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So here's the amazing thing. The angel of the Lord appears. He goes and finds her. And he announces that Ishmael will be born. And he says he will be fruitful. He'll be so fruitful that we won't even be able to number his offspring, which is an echo, again, of Genesis, of the original blessing of God to Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. And the angel is saying, that's going to happen through your son. Which would have been, um, and then he sends her back. Um, she's, she's given mercy. She's given this amazing blessing. Um, God is merciful to the insiders and to the outsiders. He, he sends rain on the just and the unjust, Jesus says. He is the God who sees and he has compassion for all. And um, this blessing of like multitudes coming from her would have been this extraordinary gift. Remember, identity is all about your offspring. And a servant in this society to be told, you're going to be a multitude that we can't even count, would have been this incredible like jaw-dropping thing to be told by God. Um, and yet, in verse 12, there's lots of blessing, but there's also this like, yeah, he's going, to be fight. he's going to be powerful, and he's going to be big, but he's going to be fighting all the time. And by the way, that is, sometimes this is abused by Christians to talk about just like the whole Middle East, like the whole Arab world who traced their lineage back to Ishmael as being like dismissing all of them. This is not like an ethnic description. This is a description of a spiritual reality uh, of warfare and of fighting, which did and has in many ways come true um, but it's not about ethnicity or what country you're from but he is saying this there's all kinds of blessing there's all kinds of compassion but God is also saying and yet Ishmael is not the one he's not the fulfillment of the promise um, so why not so we got the sins of the fathers consequences for the sons compassion for the outcasts but also redemption by the son. Redemption by the son. So I got to wonder, like every now and then, do you ever read a story, especially in the Old Testament, and you just go, why is this even here? Like, why, what is this doing in the Bible? Um, why are there so many smoking orangutans in the Bible? Like, lots of them. There's, like, weird, weird stuff. Um, especially of, like, the fathers that we respect. Like, you know that story of, uh, you may not know this one, there's uh, where uh, King David, who will become King David, is going to marry, uh, wants to marry this girl, and her dad's like, only if you get me 100 foreskins of my enemies. And David says, 
I'll make it 200. And then he like goes and he kills 200 people and brings the foreskins to the dad who I guess counted them. Um, like, what is this doing here? Like, why is this here? Uh, this is not a good, good story. And it's because the Bible is not about the purity of his followers. It's not about the purity or faithfulness of his followers. It's about God's faithfulness to his people. It's about his grace, about his, in the best sense of the word, his condescension to us. And the story is telling us here, saying, he listened to the voice of his wife, and she took and she gave. The, the Bible is telling us, you need a new Adam. You need a new Adam, and it's not Abraham. And you need a new son, and it's not Ishmael. And it's not Ishmael, it's not even Isaac, who will later come. Spoiler alert, it's coming later. But Isaac himself, he's a negligent dad. Um, He plays favorites with his sons, who, like Abraham, would later offer his wife, as we saw Abram do a few weeks ago, to another another man to save his own life in Genesis chapter 26. Say you're my sister, sleep with him. And he's ultimately not the one either. And so we need this promised son, but it's not Ishmael and it's not Isaac, but it's Emmanuel. And you fast forward to the New Testament, and the angel of the Lord appears to an unlikely mother. This time not an old, barren lady, but to a young virgin. And he says, behold, you will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God's with us. And Jesus, this promised son, who calls to the outcasts, and he blesses and brings those who feel like they are far off and away and other. And he invites them in. And he restores broken relationships and enters into the mess of all of our family trees. And he redeems it. Um, several years ago, I was at, I'm part of a denomination. I'm a Presbyterian minister. And we have this thing called General Assembly. And a few years ago, it was really cool. We do it all over the country, but it was in Virginia Beach at the conference center. So it was easy for me to go. And there was this amazing moment in this like, very like, C-SPAN but church event called General Assembly. But uh, an Israeli Christian and a Palestinian Christian were on stage together who lived there, were pastors over there. And they stood up together and spoke to this assembly of thousands of pastors from around this country. And they talked about how they have massive disagreements with each other. And the members of their church have massive disagreement and hostility towards each other. And yet they love each other. And yet they both claim Jesus. And they both say, we've got a lot of garbage to work out amongst each other. But we trust in the promised son. And our faith is in him. And he has brought healing to where they're standing on stage, like arms around each other, like in the midst of their differences. I love that they didn't say, everything's cool now because we're both Christians. They said, we fight and we argue a lot, very passionately. But we love each other, and we're brothers, and we're together, and so are the people of our church. Like, he can do that in this generational multitudes of conflict over millennia. He can do it in your family story. We, sit down, let's do a genogram, you look at mine. It is a train wreck. When I was a kid, um, a man named Stuart, when I was about 10 years old, showed up on my front door and said he was my dad's brother. And we didn't know about him. And he was the son of my dad's adopted grandfather who my grandfather had abandoned after committing adultery and marrying my grandmother. And that's just the beginning of it. 
And you look through my dad's family story, and then you see how Jesus entered his life in his mid-20s, shortly after college, and how he redeemed him and brought him around and did amazing things in him. And he was by no means a perfect dad, and I've inherited a bunch of stuff from my dad and before people before him. But I can see, I can tell you how God has worked in my father and in my life because Jesus enters into these, this ugly family tree. And he says, I'm going I'm to redeem this from the roots up. I'm going to change it. And then Jesus, I love it. It says that Sarai took and gave, and Eve took and gave. And Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, took bread and gave it to his disciples. The New Testament intentionally picks up on these same words. But instead of taking something bad and causing sin, Jesus is saying, this is my body. Take it. I give it to you to bring about your redemption and your forgiveness and your transformation, to enter into our stories and to redeem the whole world, to give us a new family and a new heritage and a new inheritance. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you can redeem uh, all the mess that we are all in.